everyone. Welcome to Two Bye Guys. We have another awesome interview for you today. My guest is a bi activist, freelance journalist, and writer based in London. We seem to be interviewing lots of writers based in London. There's a lot of bisexuality in London, I think. Why, it's one of my favorite cities. They are the founder of the Bisexual Survivors Network and the founder of the Do Better By Us campaign, which aims to challenge biphobia. Their writing on bisexuality has been published by The Independent, The Advocate, Diva Magazine, Gay Star News, Into, Openly, and much more. They created and hosted the YouTube series The Ambassadors, along with former Two Bi Guys guest Vanit Mehta. And their first book is called By the Way, The Bisexual Guide to Life. It was published in 2021 by Jessica Kingsley Publishers, and it's great. I just took a look at it. Please welcome to Two Bi Guys, Lois Shearing, finally. Hello, Lo. Hi. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I have been super excited to like come on the show for a really long time. <laughs> so thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be chatting. And London is a really bisexual city. <laughs> We have like quite a thriving bi scene here, I think. Um, I'm always, yeah, really excited to like get to talk to people about London's bi community. And my book is actually dedicated to the bi community in London, who, as I say in the front of my book, kind of took me under their wing when I was a little 21 year old when I first arrived in this city and had no friends no idea what I was doing, found this amazing bi community, uh, found these amazing bi activists who just kind of like took in this probably little wide-eyed country bumpkin who looked terrified and sort of, you know, showed me the ropes a little bit. So, <laughs> Cool. That's awesome. I, I actually studied abroad in college in London, loved it. It became one of my favorite cities, but I wasn't out for so long and then finally got to come back a couple times after coming out before COVID and really got to explore mm. the queer scene. And yeah, it's it's thriving. I haven't so much met the bi scene in London because of COVID, but hopefully I will soon. And I I also didn't, I also neglected to read in your intro that you run a sewing and crafting group for queer people in London. M- maybe not still, but did you used to do that? I did used to. Uh, it's still going as far as as far as I'm aware. Um, I think one of the other co-hosts is still running it. Um, they still run it mainly on Discord, I think. I think it's mostly just a Discord server now. Um, but yeah, that was kind of like one of the first kind of by organizing things I did was set up this like sewing circle. It's called Stitch by Stitch. The by is obviously B-I. <laughs> and yeah, we used to meet uh, monthly in the South Bank Center and do um, do some sewing together. It was really fun. That's awesome. I love sewing and knitting. Um, I'm, I also do some knitting at home when I have time. Have you ever done any bi activism without a bi pun in the title? <laughs> Just oh, that's such a good question. <laughs> Vinny, actually, who you just mentioned, whenever we organize stuff together, he always says, like, I'm going to leave the name of the event to you because you're going to think of, like, some kind of pun to go with it. And I'm always yes. like, stop putting this on me. And then I'll text him half an hour later and be like, we should call it this. And he's like, yes. <laughs> hey, when you found the perfect buy pun, you got to use it. <laughs> Okay. It's my talent. Uh, <laughs> yes, it's a it's an ability that many bi people share. I think. Um, yeah. Cool. Well, welcome. Great to have you. Let's. I want to get into your book and all the topics in the book and among and the activism you're doing. But as we always do, let's start with you. What pronouns do you use? How do you like to identify? What labels do you use? And then we'll talk a little bit about the journey to get there. Cool. Yeah. So uh, normally my pronouns are they, she. I'm going through a little bit of a they, them phase at the moment, which I sometimes go through. Um, And then sometimes I'll go back through like a just a she phase. Sometimes I'll go through an all pronouns phase. Um, As I'm sure we'll cover in this book, I'm very, I'm a big fan of like phases. Uh, Sorry, I said in this book, I meant in this podcast. As I'm sure we'll cover in this podcast, (laughs) I'm a big fan of phases. Um, Cool. So I identify as a genderqueer woman, um, but I also sometimes just use bisexual as my gender identifier as well. Um, and I have a lot of 
I have a lot of thoughts about bisexuality as gender that we could maybe talk about later. Interesting. Um, but yeah, so I kind of use bisexual as my whole label. I've been identifying this way since I was about 14 and now in my late 20s. So it's really just stuck. Cool. Oh, I, okay. I definitely want to come back to that quickly because I'm fascinated by bisexuality as gender. Okay. But cool. we got to get there. Let Tell us, tell us about when you were 14 and like, how did you realize it? What was that evolution like? When did you start using those terms and coming out? So I wish I could remember like what my awakening was like when I was in my early teens. I remember I'm someone who like I've I've always been bisexual and I've always known on some level that I was attracted to people of any gender. Um, but I went to a Church of England primary school and I have this really distinct memory of when we had sex education, uh, we then had a vicar come in and tell us that sex was only between a man and a woman who were married. And I very distinctly remember having this memory of being like, oh, you're like, I'm only allowed to be attracted to men. And so everyone else is just attracted to like, you know, the uh, the opposite gender. I must be the only one who feels this way. And so I'm just going to tuck that information away and like not, not ever think about it anymore. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And then when I got into secondary school, I did come out quite young. I came out in like year nine, which is about 14. So I don't really know the equivalent in America, maybe like middle school. Um, And I I wish I could remember like how I got from tucking away that information to then like being like, yes, I'm bisexual. Um, I think it was quite a long journey, which involved my art teacher in year seven (laughs) who was a woman and I was not into art I'm really bad at art but I was like I just I just want to be so good at art I just love art and I want my teacher to like me so much and I I couldn't (laughs) work out why and now I look back and I'm like oh I had a crush on my art teacher Mm -hmm. um and then like a lot of people who came out as queer in like the early 2000s I think it involved a lot of typing like two girls kissing into YouTube very late at night um (laughs) like eventually yeah I I kind of came out at about 14 I was like in very much deep in like the emo subculture um and so I think that made it easier for me to come out at the age I did because like emo as a subculture was very bisexual Um, Uh uh-huh And so, like, a lot of my friends were also identifying that way. And, like, some of them still do. Some of them went on to identify as straight. Some of them went on to identify as gay. I stayed with bisexual. So, yeah, that's kind of how I got to got to that point. Cool. Okay. And then, so, I guess now tell me, I'm curious about bisexuality as a gender. And I guess, like, how did your conception of your sexuality and or gender change from you know you realized it you started coming out and then to now how has it evolved it's quite hard to to conceptualize like bisexuality as gender it's something I've only really been thinking about in the last kind of like year or so and it's kind of like my sexuality is very fluid and for me the word that best describes that is bisexual and my gender Uh is also very fluid um and so I use like gender fluid to kind of sum that up But I also don't think I can separate my bisexuality from my gender fluidness and my gender fluidness from my bisexuality. I think the two are very interlinked. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think as well, like in my book, I think I described myself as a bit of like a gender chameleon that I often find myself. And this probably has a lot to do with like neurodivergency as well. I often find myself like mirroring (laughs) the like gender expression of the people that I'm into. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of like how I have come to this idea of like bisexuality as gender. And the way that I relate to kind of the people that I'm dating is often through this lens of bisexuality. And I consider my own gender like through that lens when I'm relating to them. And I was just very inspired by, I have some friends who kind of talk about their their gender identity as being lesbian. Huh. Because obviously like <clears throat> queer women have a different understanding of womanhood to straight women because in our very like patriarchal society womanhood is often dictated in relation to men um whereas if you're a lesbian and you've chosen to completely opt out of 
existing in relation to men, obviously your conceptualization of womanhood changes as well. And I, I feel that way as well, that like my yeah. womanhood in its relationship to both like patriarchy and to men is influenced by my bisexuality. Mm-hmm. But also I just find a lot of power in that. Like I know a lot of people who just use queer as their gender identity as well as their uh-huh. sexuality or who use like lesbian or dyke as just like their gender identity. Um, huh. And it just felt like it made sense for me as well that like bisexual is such an important term for me that it just kind of encompasses my gender as well. That's really interesting. It's like, I, I'm, we haven't really talked about it in this way on the show yet, but it makes so much sense because I do think that sexuality and gender are very tied together, yeah. especially as like gender gets more fluid, especially within one person, then it's almost like that necessarily affects your sexuality because the sexuality is about your gender and potential genders of other people. So that, that sure. like I, I identify as a man. I, I've had thoughts like, am I non-binary or gender? Maybe I'm a little gender fluid, but I don't feel like I'm non-binary. I feel like a cis man. But I do feel like bisexual is related to my gender. Like I'm a bisexual mm-hmm. man and it's different than before. And I do feel like my masculinity is different than a straight man. Um, so I, I like that. That's interesting. And I do feel like, I mean, something that's like a very biphobic notion of bisexuality is this idea that it like destabilizes gender because it kind of blurs the lines between like male and female if we pretend those are the only two genders. Um, Uh It blurs like distinction by finding men and women similar enough to be attracted to both of them. And so I think like once you have started to like blur that distinction in your sexuality it also becomes quite hard to keep them very rigidly separate within your own gender identity and so I think for me like being bisexual and being able to relate to people of different genders in all the different ways that bisexuality has has also made it much harder for me to be like what is the box of woman what is the box of man why can't I just have a little bit of everything we are greedy as 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 bisexuals and I decided to just be all the genders as well (laughs) right well and it's also that thing of like when when i'm attracted to someone it's a little bit of like i want to be with that person but i also kind of want to be that person and like oh if something is interesting or attractive to me i'm gonna start thinking about it for myself too and and so you know they've definitely affected each other and like i i almost wish the term non-binary could be a sexuality like it's Mm. it's sort of more used as a a gender term but you know with all this bi pan debates that all this sometimes I feel like it's nonsense going back and forth like defining things is because we're all like basically in the same umbrella like to me the term non-binary as a sexuality is is very broad and all-encompassing it's like anything other than straight gay lesbian so for sure I don't know. and i do know um the academic meg john barker has kind of used non-binary in that way um mm. their book life isn't binary kind of talks about non-binary sexualities to include kind of like bi pan queer but also just going back to what you said about when we're attracted to people you kind of start to emulate them a little bit I think the scholar Lil Nas X sums it up quite well in his lyric I want to fuck the ones I envy Um, yep (laughs) that's a big gender mood as well you know yes exactly let's talk about productivity I struggle with this I have a million projects that I'm working on I often feel overwhelmed and yet I also find it difficult, especially working from home, to get to work for a full day, hour after hour, and to keep it going. I definitely burn out, especially if it's like writing or something creative. It's hard to stay in the zone. I need to take lots of breaks. I do use coffee to keep it going and to stay awake and to stay focused. But to be honest, 
the longer into the afternoon I'm having coffee, it doesn't feel so great. I get that jittery feeling. I get that acid reflux. I I just don't feel great. So when I got this sample of Magic Mind, I was definitely skeptical at first. It's this tiny little shot. I didn't really think it could make that much of a difference, but it really is kind of magical. I take it with the first cup of coffee or soon after. I don't need to keep having the coffee well into the afternoon. And somehow I am much more focused and able to sit at the computer without it feeling like I'm forcing myself to do that. Like I get in that zone much more since I've been using Magic Mind. Magic Mind has all sorts of cool ingredients. It's got a lot of matcha, which contains way less caffeine than coffee, but also additional compounds called catechins. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. Who knows? But they extend the benefit of caffeine by slowing your body's ability to absorb it. And it also has a chemical called L-theanine, which reduces stress. It has Bacopa Manieri, a nootropic that improves your attention span, your ability to process and learn new information, and your memory. And it has Ashwagandha an adaptogen that reduces stress and anxiety. It also has other things. It has lion's mane mushrooms. That's easy to read. Another nootropic and adaptogen that reduces anxiety and inflammation while also supporting cognition. So many things. There's even more that I won't pronounce. So I highly recommend Magic Mind. I have a 20% off code to share with you guys. It is byguys20. So to use it, you go to magicmind.co slash byguys and enter code BYGUYS20. The best part is they have a money-back guarantee, and if you get the subscription, it's 40% off for the next 10 days. So it's 20% off any order, money-back guarantee, 40% off a subscription, magicmind.co slash BYGUYS, promo code BYGUYS20. So your writing is everywhere. You're writing about bisexuality. It's all over. And looking at the list of topics you covered, it, it's vast. Uh, and you've been doing it for, for a few years now. So I'm curious, like, how you got started writing queer and bi content? Like, was that your goal to be writing about queerness and bisexuality? Or did you kind of fall into it and it grew naturally? I definitely fell into it when I first started doing freelance journalism when I was so I did journalism at university and I started freelancing in my third year and I was originally doing like rural affairs content because I'm a little country bumpkin um so I was writing about like equestrianism and farming and that kind of stuff uh so if you go really far back on if you google my name and go really far back you'll eventually find like a load of rural affairs stuff it's quite funny um cool but then <laughs> I did my dissertation at university on this is such, this is such a wordy like title it was how non-monosexual identities were represented in the news coverage of the UK same-sex marriage law yeah we could do a whole podcast on that dissertation <laughs> yeah. I think okay it wasn't good <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I did my dissertation on that and that was kind of how I first started reading academically about bisexuality. I'd been like very heavily involved in like bi Tumblr for like a lot of my teens. So then for my dissertation, I started reading, uh, yeah, all of this academic work that was out there about bisexuality and it just like resonated with me so deeply. Just like the, the, yeah, like the scholarly stuff about bisexuality just seemed to align so well with my just general politics. And so I started writing for a little blog called The Queerness, which is amazing and everyone should check out. Just literally my just like, I think this is a bisexual thing. And then it just kind of escalated from there, really. Uh, and I just, you know, kept thinking about it, kept writing about it. Just I could not be shut up, basically. <laughs> Great. Perfect. <laughs> and like, how do you juggle writing for so many different mediums and platforms? And like, is that your full-time job or is it a side gig or how do you look at it? At the moment, it's a side gig. I have a full-time job as a content writer for an education agency. Eventually it might be quite nice for it to be my full-time gig. But yeah, at the moment I'm just kind of freelancing a lot and I just sort of pitch it like anywhere basically and just hope somewhere picks it up and quite a few places have picked up a lot of what I've written about bisexuality. So that's really yeah. great. 
Yeah, you were you were like slightly ahead of the curve of like there has been a, <laughs> a kind of an explosion lately, but mm-hmm. uh, it's very recent. Has your writing on this subject changed over time? Like when you look back at what you wrote a few years ago versus the kind of things you're thinking about now, how has it evolved? I think it's less apologetic. And what hmm. I mean by that is I think I used to really write from a place of like, Black people do exist and we do have issues. Please listen to us. Whereas now I write from a place of like, these are the things that mattered to like by people and to our community. This is what we need to be doing. Or this is what I think we need to be doing. But also like, I feel like I've just kind of, I mean, you describe it as like by 2.0 topics. Um, I feel like I've kind of moved past the writing of like five issues that affect the bi community or like things not to say to a bi girl not that those articles aren't important and now I sometimes get approached to like give quotes for them and I always really enjoy that but I much prefer writing about things like bisexuality as gender or um how would we better conceptualize queerness if we stopped pretending that bi people were always riding on the coattails of queer culture and acknowledge that like a lot of bi celebrities build queer culture cool Um, that's awesome so I think that's what I mean by less apologetic yeah, uh, that makes sense. I feel like I, when I started talking about this stuff too, that it was like almost defensive in a way at first mm. of like, cause I had felt so much shame and stigma and being told it wasn't real that like the first kind of push was like, it is real and it's valid and it's okay. And like, uh, we kind of did that a lot, uh, season yeah. one of this podcast and then, <laughs> and then we kind of moved beyond that you have to kind of work through the like I kind of think of it as like societal societal gaslighting almost that you're saying like this is a thing that I'm experiencing and living and everything around you is saying no it isn't you're wrong about that and you have to kind of get to a place where you can just kind of trust your own experiences and say like okay I'm I'm just taking the fact that this is real and this is who I am and this matters as a baseline and we're going to go from there Yeah, exactly. Well, and I think it's most bi people go through a similar evolution. And so like when I go back and listen to some of season one of this podcast, I'm like, oh God, I sound, you know, (laughs) I sound different. I don't sound, I'm not talking about it the same way. I'm a a little defensive and, but that's why I don't go back and listen much. But I do (laughs) think it's like valuable for people who are new to this and looking for stuff for the first time, like, to read an article about bisexual people exist or here are five Mm -hmm. things, you know, that are biphobic. Like that is important for the newbies, but uh, if you're you're listening to season five of two bi guys, we we can get into (laughs) 2.0 stuff. (laughs) Yeah. I'm curious, like you've written about being diagnosed as dyslexic as how has that affected your work as like a professional writer? Like, is that, how do you overcome that challenge in your in Yeah, your work? it's affected my work as a professional writer in my day job several times. I've had to, I think I mentioned in like the intro to my book that I had to, midway through writing it, I experienced like workplace discrimination because of my dyslexia and had to leave my job. And that was like the second time that that had happened to me. But JKP were amazing. Like when I had my first um, meeting with Andrew, who was my editor at the time, uh, one of my questions to him was like, I'm dyslexic. How is like, I'm worried that I'm going to turn something into you and you're going to be like, this is unreadable. Um, and he was like, A, that's not going to happen because I've already like read a lot of your content. And B, they actually, um, they do a lot of work on a lot of books on neurodivergency. And so they'd already worked with dyslexic writers and they had editors who knew how to work with dyslexic writers I mean, one of my favorite notes that I got back all throughout the book was like every time I'd spelled bisexual wrong, they had to highlight it and be like, are you referring to something else here? And I just had to like put down this blanket thing of like, no, it's just a lot of vowels in the word bisexual and they move around for me. (laughs) 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 So right now I'm writing a book about fascism and I keep spelling the word fascism wrong. So that's fun as well. Um, But yeah, for the book... Being dyslexic obviously does affect my writing career quite a lot, but luckily not with JKP. So I'm I'm really grateful for that. It was a really great like first experience. 
Awesome. Cool. Well, so that leads right into it. So let's get into the book. And and before we do talk about the topics in it, I'm curious about Jessica Kingsley Publishers and how how did you decide you wanted to write this book? How did you go about pitching and selling it? Like, tell us about that process, because I'm in the middle of a similar process. Okay, so cool. I'm oh picking your brain here a little. Um. Okay, so you're gonna not like my answer then. <laughs> so, so I had always like I'd been writing a lot about bisexuality, and I knew that like down the line I would want to write a book about it. I had thought about maybe doing a book of essays, but I had actually written a children's book, a queer children's book, that I was pitching around, and um, someone I know uh, who's also published with JKP, uh, their book is called Ace to Z. And it's like a dictionary of like queer terms. They suggested that I pitch it at JKP and they helped me like go through that process of pitching it. And then uh, again, Andrew got in touch with me and said that they weren't interested in children's books at the moment, but they were doing a series on LGBT issues for the teen market. And they were looking for someone to write the B section um, and that they'd seen my portfolio and would I be interested in writing a book for teenagers about bisexuality instead? And I said, yes, I would love to do that. Wow. <laughs> um, Amazing. Uh, yeah. And originally I went in with this like really, uh, this is no shade to Andrew. I love Andrew if he's ever listening to this. But I went in with these really like dense notes about, I was like, I want to write a book about biphobia specifically and kind of mechanisms of biphobia and how it works. And I opened my notes and I said, okay, so as you know, bi people often feel discriminated against by both gay and straight people. And Andrew said, oh, really? I didn't know that. And then I like shut my notes and I was like, okay, <laughs> this is actually the book I'm going to write for you. <laughs> and kind of pitched the like the FAQ thing that it turned out being. Yeah. I, I mean, I understand that. And I think there's like room in the world for a book about biphobia. I'd love to read it. But that it makes sense. Like sometimes we forget that there is a lack of baseline knowledge about mm -hmm. bisexuality from most of the world. Like I'm in a bi yeah. bubble sometimes and then you meet a regular person. And they know <laughs> they don't even know that. Right. And so your book is yeah. really like a great primer um, on sort of all the most important foundational things about Thank you. bisexuality. This episode of Two Bye Guys is sponsored by BetterHelp. Give online therapy a try at betterhelp.com slash two bye guys and get on your way to being your best self. You know, when I was starting to realize I was bi and starting to come out, I kind of wished there was a user manual for this experience. Thankfully, these days, there are more and more books being published, but there is no user manual for each of us individually because we're all experiencing this in a completely new way, and how could there be? But there is the next best thing, which is therapy. Therapists are trained to help you figure out the cause of challenging emotions and learn productive coping skills, which makes therapy the closest thing to a guided tour of the complex engine called you. So whether it's coming out as bi or navigating your gender or completely separate things like a career change, a new relationship, becoming a parent, therapy can help you navigate all of life's challenges. I personally have benefited greatly from therapy. I've been in therapy for probably about five years now. I've learned to deal with trauma. I've learned coping skills. I've learned how I tend to think about things in patterns and how I can break out of those patterns. And I was lucky. I have been with the same therapist for a while who I got through a recommendation. But if you don't have that or that's hard to find, BetterHelp can be a great option. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist, and if things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash two by guys, T-W-O-B-I-G-U-I-S. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash two by guys. So let's talk about those things. Cool. A lot of it is stuff we've 
talked about on this show and there's there's like lots of great basics here wait let me read some of the chapter headings if i can find it uh just to just to give people an idea am i bi what if i have a preference does bisexuality reinforce the gender binary when should i come out What's it like dating for bi people? Okay, so all great stuff, and and everyone is, can find all the answers to those questions in in the book, except for am I bi? As you write, <laughs> you can't answer that for people. Um, but but if they read the book, they'll have a better idea. Okay, but I I read it and I honed in on some sort of things I thought were really interesting and thought provoking. Um, some next some some two stuff. So. The first thing was this concept of being really bi. Are you really bi? Quote. And I'm going to read something you wrote because I just thought it was a great, you know, sort of intro to this. You wrote lots of people, even if they've been out as bi for years like me, still often find themselves questioning whether they are really bi or bi enough. In my 11 years of being out and interacting with the bi community, I found that this is probably the most unifying bi experience. The world around us isn't great at recognizing or celebrating bisexuality. Every bi person I know has been asked at some point in their lives if they're sure they're not actually gay or actually straight based on their dating history normally more than once. So, I mean, yeah, like I've heard that so often in my own life, but I I hadn't heard it talked about as like the most unifying bi experience, but I think it may be. So can you just talk about your experience with that and, and why you wrote that? Yeah, I just, I really don't think I've ever met a bi person who something we haven't connected over or talked about is just like, that question <laughs> like it just comes up all the time like are you really bi you sure you're not this you sure you're not that uh-huh. and like so much of our discourse as a community is also about feeling bi enough or like not feeling like we're queer enough and like that has to come from somewhere like that that can't be all of us sharing the same like insecurity like it comes from the culture around us that says actually you'll settle down with one or the other or you'll realize this along the way so I yeah I do think that's one of the most like unifying by experiences is that constantly having to like reassert yourself and come out again and assure people like yes you're sure um yeah and so yeah that's kind of why I think it's like something that connects all of us and brings us all together is this constant like having to really push about our identity I I totally agree and I, I and I think as you wrote it also highlights just how binary the culture we live in is and just how uncomfortable m- most people are with the concept of fluidity because it is difficult to categorize mm. and we like to categorize things and so that's why i think most bi people have, you know f- have heard those things and feel that pressure yeah i think my most like salient example of it happening to me was uh, when I was a teenager, I dated a, a man for five years. And then immediately after that, in my early 20s, I dated someone who at the time identified as a woman for like four and a half years. So I was nearly perfectly 50-50 um, in my <laughs> early dating experience. And like still, like immediately after that, people would hear this and be like, yeah, but like, which one do you prefer? Or like, which way are you really? And I was like, I've nearly reached like the, the bi-equilibrium that we're supposed to all... <laughs> strive for and yet you're still asking me this question yeah so that's that's wild because yes people always think it's this 50 50 and so then it's like even even when you're there the the question so it's it's not enough (laughs) so it's really not about that it's really about this some sort of discomfort with duality or something actually Mm -hmm. I'm, i'm jumping two questions down this was literally my question was why do you think so many non-bi people have trouble understanding that it doesn't have to be a 50-50 split, that like we can still have preferences and experience attraction differently over time or like fluidity? Why do you think people have such trouble with that? I don't know if you can really answer for all the <laughs> yeah. other people out there, but... I think people love to be able to categorize things. And I think it's like a survival tactic. I think I talked about this a bit in the beginning of my book that like, it has been a very useful survival tactic to be able to say like, hmm, that thing is orange and stripy. I don't have enough time to also see if it has like big paws and big teeth. I'm just going to run away because it's a tiger. And so I, I still think that is like this slight impulse to need to like categorize things. And that's why we end up with a lot of like, 
the internal biases that we have, not just towards like queer people, but towards like people of color and disabled people and all of these kind of things. And I do think, yeah, particularly for bi people, we do kind of elude that conceptualization a little bit. Mm -hmm. And again, we make it harder for like people to ascertain like their straight privilege because as I, as uh, I always say this person's name wrong, it's Yoshino uh, who wrote the epistemic contract of bisexual erasure. Um, hmm. talks about how if you see a man who talks about how much he loves his wife but then you find out he's also sleeping with men then you know you could have accidentally given straight privilege to someone who doesn't deserve it and that's very threatening to our culture huh. so I think a lot of it comes from like the threat that we as bi people pose to like heterosexual patriarchal ideals that a man will love a woman and only a woman, and that m- makes him a real man. <laughs> um, right. And so I think that's why, like, people are so uncomfortable with by people like crossing over these these boundaries that we're not supposed to. Right. That's really interesting, and it makes sense. Yeah, it is like dismantling these pillars of patriarchy. Mm-hmm. You also write in the book about bisexuality as freedom. Quote. Um, can you explain what that means to you? Yeah, so that's a Juno Jordan quote. She was an amazing poet who wrote a lot about bisexuality. I think that's mine, and I know it's several other people's like favorite quote about bisexuality. For me, it just kind of yeah, it means like not having to choose. It means having like more options. I know that like the respectable thing that bi people are meant to say is like, oh well, we don't really have more options, and like it's just as hard dating, and that is true. But I do also enjoy having more <laughs> options. I do also <laughs> I think I'm I don't know if I talked about this in the book or if I've just talked about it somewhere else, but like one of my favorite places to be bisexual is on the tube here in London. I love getting on the tube and being like, she's cute, he's hot, blah 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 blah. Like uh-huh. it's fun, it's freedom, it's like possibilities, it's not having to put myself in boxes that I don't want to put myself in. It's like not having to ignore these like borders that have been put around my identity by other people yeah so i think that's what i'm what i like about the phrase bisexuality is freedom i love it too i love that freedom to to choose and you know we get that biphobia of like why why can't bi people just like decide and make a choice and it's like i make lots of choices it's just Mm -hmm. that's what i like is making lots of choices not just one choice to live with for the rest of my life but like continuing to see where I'm at and what I want and, you know, making a new choice today that I didn't make yesterday. Mm-hmm. It's it's very freeing and you don't get locked in. For sure. Cool. Okay. I really liked this chapter or topic about essentialism and and as we're talking about like choices and choosing. And like, so you write about how biphobia and transphobia can grow from essentialism, which is this idea that our identity is innate rather than a choice. And you write that the bo- this born this way narrative, which is kind of what I grew up hearing about in terms of gay and lesbian people, that it's left a lot of queer people out in the cold. So I'm curious, how, how do you view this conflict between the innateness of our identity versus choosing? Because I think it is complicated for bi people, like it's our you know, feelings are not a choice, but sort of coming out is more active of a choice or transitioning is a more active thing you have to choose. It doesn't just happen. So how do you view that? Yeah, I mean, I might use the other F word here again, because I've been writing and thinking about fascism a lot recently. And I think essentialism ties really closely to fascism. And so I've been thinking a lot about biphobia and fascism recently, which maybe isn't good. Um, sounds but, sounds great to me. <laughs> um, so the kind of like the, the essentialist argument is that there is something innate within people that makes them the category that they are. And so it depends on like the person making this argument. So for a lot of people, it's like a biological essentialism. So it's uh, if you have certain genitalia or certain chromosomes then you are a certain gender and this is also where the like scientific hunt for like the gay gene has come from that like there must be this unifying thing this essence of the thing that all the people in that category share um and for other people and again i'm thinking about 
kind of fascism here. It's this like uh, mystical essentialism of like this divine thing that makes someone a woman or a man or whatever. And so again, I think bi people evade that a little bit because like there could be an essence that makes someone attracted to everyone or makes someone attracted to all genders. But it could also be that maybe there isn't an essence that unifies all men, that unifies all women, that unifies all non-binary people. And that once you can kind of see past the cultural boundaries put around all of those identities, you realize that you're just interacting with people rather than categories. Um, yeah. And that's not to say that like gender isn't real or that sexuality isn't real. Like it absolutely is. But also it's very like bound up in our culture. Like heterosexuality is a concept only started existing a couple of hundred years ago. And like bisexuality and, and homosexuality, like gayness followed quite swiftly afterwards as concepts. Right. But these things aren't like these divine ideals that we've always been aware of. And they're different depending on like, your cultural understanding of gender or your cultural understanding of romantic love. Absolutely. Let me jump in. Cause like, I, I, I totally agree. Like these categories that we're brought up with are, are created by people. They're not real things. And like, I think when I started to view sexuality and gender as spectrums rather than distinct categories, like that really conflicts with essentialism because if everyone is some dot on a big 3d spectrum you know mm-hmm. then then we're all we're all in the same space and then these groups we we draw circles around the dots to say okay th- these people are this thing and these people are this thing that's all kind of invented and that's a choice that our society has made for us the spectrum is is a it's a spectrum for sure and then the way that kind of links into thinking about right-wing concepts or like authoritarian concepts is that once you start creating these binary categories or these very separate categories, we kind of then naturally start ranking them. We put men above women. We put straight people above queer people. We put able people above disabled people. And if you start removing the like essence of the thing that creates those categories, it becomes a lot, a lot harder to rank them. Yeah. Oh, that makes so much sense. Exactly. Um, So also in the book you wrote on this topic, you wrote, I want to read this because I loved it. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) I'm I'm not saying being queer is a choice. I'm saying, so what if it were? Why shouldn't we deserve to have our gender identities and sexualities respected even if we did choose them? Which, Which I agree with. And I also loved you wrote, some of us don't feel like we were born the way we now identify and that our sexuality may change and develop even with our input as we grow. So- uh, I mean, it's very well said there, but do you want to f- comment on that further? <laughs> yeah, I think just, I mean, Heron Greensmith has done some really amazing writing on the Born This Way narrative and kind of its pros and limitations of, you know, it, it has been the way that like same-sex marriage and a lot of queer rights have been hard won, especially in the United States. But it also has this limit that we now are held to this standard that if we're not always this thing, if we don't always feel like we're this thing, if we don't feel like it's a core part of who we are or something that we were born with, then do we not deserve those same rights? Like if someone, right. their whole life, if a woman their whole life has only loved men and has has never even thought about loving women and then falls in love with a woman and thinks, maybe she's just the one-off, maybe I only love this woman, does she not still deserve to marry her just because she doesn't necessarily now can consider herself a lesbian or bisexual or anything like that. Right. And I do also think that like it gives us more autonomy to be able to say, actually, like maybe I want to disengage with this part of this identity. And you know, lots of lots of people do make choices about how they express themselves or who they date or choose who they you can't really choose who you fall in love with, but you can choose who you want to pursue. Right. So and I I mean those people deserve rights and freedoms as well. Like <laughs> Um, yep. So again, I think it's moving away from this slightly like right wing idea of you only deserve rights if you kind of can always prove you're this thing and where you fit within like the ranking of that thing. Yeah, that is not a good scientific explanation. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Thank you. Next topic. Let's talk about 
coming out, you know, the chapter on coming out, but I want to hone in on something specific. You wrote about when you first came out, it was to a friend, like a close friend who then later, a few years later came out to you as bi. That has happened to me so many times. <laughs> um, like of people I knew from my past who when I come out, they come out to me or when I come out a few years later, they come out to me as bi. Why do you think think that's such a common experience for bi people? I don't know if it's just for bi people in particular. I guess for me, like I live in quite a bi bubble, so that is more my experience. But I think just like, yeah, once you have a friend who starts like living this way and you start seeing the freedoms or like the authenticity that it offers them, it does become just so much easier for you to start like reflecting on your own thoughts and feelings. Like the old phrase, you can't be what you don't see. I think like previously, even for my generation, and I'm not that old, even though people on Twitter keep calling me like a bi elder. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm in my 20s. Amazing. Um, I'm like, you're much younger than me. So yeah. what does that make me? <laughs> um, even for like people my age and in my generation who like things are a lot better for us and there was a lot more rep- rep- representation the like best representation we could hope for was like our friends coming out and living authentically. Mm-hmm. So I do just think it's that. I think it's like once you start seeing people living comfortably in themselves, it becomes so much easier for you to reflect on that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also on this topic of coming out, like, you know, as we know by people are the most invisible, possibly in the queer community where the least mm-hmm. likely to be out And so that sort of perpetuates the cycle of invisibility and shame and, you know, not coming out. And so at a certain point, I felt like I have to come out. I have a responsibility, but that I, it took me a while to get to that point. And I was, Mm -hmm. I thought I'd take it to the grave before that. So I'm curious, like you came out pretty early, so I don't know how you felt about this at the time, but, you know, in addition to how you felt like, how do you view that at a at a society level like is it important for bi how do you balance the importance of bi people coming out with the you know it's okay to not come out and not pressuring people if they're not ready and like how how do we balance that is it okay to not come out that's such a good question of how do we balance it because i personally am like you don't owe anyone coming out um i have a friend i don't know if she's still is identifying this way but she like would not label her sexuality at all she was like it's no one's business I if I fall in love with this person then that's fine if I fall in love with this person it's fine I'm not telling anyone like even myself and I was like that's so rad I love that and like I hope eventually we can all get to that place where like it just doesn't matter anymore (laughs) Mm -hmm. but until then I guess like the way of viewing it is that coming out lets you find community like no two bi people's experiences are going to be the same, but I found that I have more in common with people who call themselves bi than like people who call themselves straight or gay. Although obviously I have a lot more in common with people who are gay. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. uh, just kind of naturally. And so I guess like the balancing act is there's so many pros to coming out in terms of like mental health when you get to like live authentically and finding community and all that kind of stuff. But then obviously it's just like not possible for some people and no one owes us like they're coming out. I do think there's a lot of like political power in it of saying like I'm going to live as this person regardless of like what I might lose out on. But we can't really make that decision for anybody else. And I guess the best we can do is keep like fighting to create an environment where it is easier to come out. You write in the book about seeing life and approaching relationships quote, through bi-tinted glasses. So I'm wondering if you could explain what that means to you. And do you feel like you're always wearing those glasses like all all the time? Or do you ever get a chance to take them off? Or do you want to? I think I may have like recently had just watched BoJack when I wrote that. And I, I don't know if you've watched BoJack, but... Um, I have, but remind me, I'm not, I don't remember. That's the kind of the really famous quote where Wanda, one of the ex-girlfriends of Bojack, talks about kind of if you wear, if you look at life through rose-tinted glasses, and all of the red flags just look like flags. Uh-huh. And I think I maybe had that analogy in my head while I was thinking about this. 
but I do think that like I can't my experience is bisexual my internal life is bisexual my internal desires are bisexual I can't look at the world in another way I don't know what it's like to be straight I don't know what it's like to be gay I can't look at the world through those experiences I guess if I was being really pretentious this kind of goes back to like the epistemic kind of argument and like philosophers that we can only like you can't ever prove that there's a world beyond your own perception and you can get into some real good solipsism there if you also like me happen to have a history of clinical depression but um, (laughs) but like I can't experience the world in any other way than as someone who is attracted to all genders and so every time I have a relationship with someone regardless of what their gender is I'm bringing my experience as a multi-gender attracted person to that relationship whether that relationship is like a friendship or romantic or just a sexual relationship I can't like bring any other experiences to it because I don't have those experiences so I think in terms of like do I ever take off my bi-tented glasses? I don't really know if I can. I think they're just embedded in there. Yeah. But also I like viewing the world in that way. It opens up more possibilities. It opens up my politics as like an anarchist person to look at the world in a way that's not about borders and binaries. Um, man, I really did get yeah. pretentious with that answer. <laughs> I love no, I love that answer. That's. I mean, that's kind of what I was thinking too of like, these glasses, I put them on because of how I see gender and relationships and sexuality, but but I still wear them when I look at other things now mm-hmm. in my life and, and my politics and like other issues that are seemingly unrelated, but you look at the world in a less binary way, I feel. So that's why I identified with that a lot. For sure. You write in the book about bi community and why it's important. So I want to ask about your experience of finding bi community in London. Like, how did it affect you? And then did it, you know, is that connected to your activist work? Like, how did you get involved in the bi activism you're involved in? Yeah, so the answer to both those questions is an event called BiFest that um, up until the pandemic was happening annually in South London. And it was just like a bi like a one-day bi festival in what are they called a Quaker church and it was just kind of a day of like workshops and talks and kind of round tables and stools and picnics if it's still going and anyone's like local I highly recommend it Um, I think it's been on pause since COVID started but I went to those like a couple of times when I first moved to London and just loved it like met so many cool people And I went to a workshop that Marcus, who runs the Bisexual Index here in the UK, was running called How to Be a Bi-Activist. And we did that workshop. And then at the end of the workshop, we were kind of doing this skills exchange thing where I was like, right, if you have this skill and you want to connect with someone else who wants to do something, then like now's a chance. And I kind of put forward that like I was interested in writing and I wanted to maybe write for like some bi websites. And then Libby, who runs Biscuit, which is a bi advocacy group here in the UK, kind of like grabbed me and was like, yes, you're coming to write for me. And then that was like five, six years ago. And I've done like the majority of my organizing since then with Marcus and Libby. And through them, yeah, I've like found so much more of like the bi community and got involved in loads of different groups. There used to be a group in London called London by Pandas, which was a direct action group. They were amazing. Shout out to Fox who like started that and read it. And yeah, that's just kind of how I've how I got involved. I got involved in activism like before I got involved in community stuff. Interesting. So I've been doing like a lot of organizing since the beginning. And now I feel like I found communities that are less about activism and are more about hanging out. <laughs> just chilling. <laughs> cool. And uh, sewing and knitting. Mm-hmm. I feel like sometimes in many respects, bi activists are we end up fighting for sort of basic rights and equal resources and and sort of basic level awareness. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it's so challenging to get that basic level of, of resources for bi people specifically? And like, what do you think is sort of the next level of bi activism? Like, how do you hope to see the movement grow? Yeah, I mean... I think I could do like another hour of just talking at you about how like 
mainstream LGBT organizations have like failed by people pretty badly Mm -hmm. um, and are often very happy to take their money but don't want to give it back to that community. (laughs) But I won't get too deep into that because that's very negative. But um, yeah, I feel like we just end up fighting for basic stuff because of like the bi ratio that not only are there not that many bi people but that like our experiences are actually just like watered down 50% gay experiences and um, that we don't have any of our own issues that we only kind of experience like 50% homophobia or like 50% of the the homelessness that gay people face, um, which actually makes me think of a really good essay in the book, by politics, queries, theories and visions, which I can see on my shelf over there, which is called, if half of you dodges a bullet, all of you dies. And it's about like, if you get shot, on one side of you it's not just half your body that dies it's all of it um Mm. which like if you get hit in the if we even invigilize by people as like half gay half straight which we're not if someone homophobically attacks the half gay part of you does the straight part get up and walk away like no it doesn't and so i think that's kind of that misconception is why we're still fighting for like our issues to be taken seriously because we're not seen as having any of our own separate issues of the community I do think Mm. that's changing slightly and I think it's because of the work of a lot of amazing bi activists who are fighting for stuff like better resources for homeless people better domestic violence resources which I obviously think is like one of the main issues facing bi people and all of that kind of stuff so I do think it's changing but yeah I think it's very slow and a lot of the LGBT organizations. And again, I think you could even link this to the born this way narrative that bi people are seen as having the option to like choose out of the gay life. That issues have just been taken less seriously and given less money. Right. It's like, oh, if you can, if you're bi and you can choose to not display your queerness, then, then you're, you should be fine and we don't need to support you. When, when in fact that attitude causes even more mental distress for bi people because we're so caught in between i also um just to add on to that i also think if i can be a little bit spicy that bi people are less palatable to a lot of the liberal donors to these organizations because i think in a lot of and i think this is a very american thing if if you don't mind me saying (laughs) please (laughs) I think a lot of these like American orgs which dictate a lot of like the general western conceptualization of queerness is that like gay people are this kind of like unfortunate desexualized other whereas like bi people we're seen as unfortunate but we're a lot less harder to desexualize because we're seen as like greedy Um, hypersexualized sometimes yeah for sure definitely and so Mm -hmm. I think the charity sector, particularly in America, has like taken a lot of the like fangs out of the politicalness of being gay because they've just kind of said like, ah, they're just one step removed from straight people because they just so happen to, you know, only like men or only like women or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And they can be made more palatable, which obviously is not true of gay people. Gay people are like very political and very rebellious to like the heteropatriarchy. Whereas gay pe- uh, bi people's issues, it's a lot harder to make as palatable to straight liberal allies. Yeah. That's my slightly spicy take. Very spicy. <laughs> I love it. Can you tell us about the Bi Survivors Network and why you created that and what it is and how it's helping people? Yeah, so the Bi Survivors Network is a support group and an awareness campaign, I guess, organizing around the fact that bi people face much higher rates of sexual and domestic violence than gay or straight people. So for bi women, the statistic is like two in three bi women are survivors. For bi men, it's something like 50%. And this is like way higher than it is for gay or straight people. There aren't really statistics about non-binary bi people. Um, I would really like it if there were some. Yeah. So yeah, we, we run a chat which happens on Telegram every other week um, and we also do awareness and like community outreach. We go to Pride and stuff like that. And so I started that in my very early 20s after I got out of an abusive relationship um, in which I felt like my bisexuality had played a role in some of the things that I'd experienced in that relationship. 
And I felt like a lot of the support groups for sexual violence didn't know how to deal with bi people. The mainstream support groups weren't very good on dealing with queer people in general. And the queer support groups didn't really know how to deal with bi people, particularly bi people who had been in like different gender relationships and experienced abuse, but were still queer and still felt that their queerness had contributed to that which now having run BSN for five years is like a very common experience I've found mm. among people who reach out to us. Huh. So yeah, that's what the Bi Survivors Network is. Um, I'm hoping to at some point be able to like produce some reports and stuff and get some more information about Bi Survivors experiences, but it's slow going. If anyone wants to volunteer, please DM me on Twitter. <laughs> cool. We'll put, we'll put some info in the show notes. I, I'm curious just to follow up like what, when, when people say they're, bisexuality may have been related to abuse or you know bad things in a relationship like do you have examples of how that could manifest for sure yeah we actually have just produced a leaflet that has some like red flags that like discusses this of like things to look out for in a relationship and includes like lots of bi people on twitter kind of answered this call out that i put out about that and a lot of it like is to do with the stereotypes as bi people as cheaters bi people as like promiscuous especially by women and especially by people of color who are really hypersexualized and are seen as like always wanting it that kind of contributes to the fetishization that like by people don't say no or that like it's okay to like by people are exotic and always consenting and that kind of stuff mm-hmm. um so that can really contribute to like rates of sexual violence and within intimate partner relationships it could be something like a partner saying to you well, you can't go out with any of your friends because I can't trust you around men or women or like I need to look through your phone because you're bi, you're more likely to cheat on me. Hmm. Like these are kind of just the ways in which like biphobia manifests within like intimate relationships and can turn sour really quickly. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. Final thought. Uh, we'll, we'll end where we started. So we started with sort of talking about how you're, sexuality and gender identity are kind of interrelated in the activism space. I think it's, that's an important concept too. Like how do you see the bisexual community and the trans non-binary communities being interrelated if they are? And like, why do you think it's important for the bi community to stand in solidarity with the trans and non-binary communities and, and vice versa? For sure. Yeah. Um, like, firstly, I think just we need to stand in solidarity with all queer people. The people attacking us do not see the difference in us in the way that we do. They see us all as queer. It doesn't matter to them whether we're gay, straight, tra- uh, sorry, gay, bi, trans, ace. Mm-hmm. We are queer to them. And so if we don't, like, fight together, then we're fucked, basically. <laughs> um but also I think specifically the overlap of like bi and trans communities, I think there's always been like a very rich history of solidarity and community between us. Uh, if you look at the statistics and like the majority of trans people identify as like bi or pan or something like that. And also within the bi communities, we have kind of like much higher rates of non-cisness than perhaps uh, gay communities do or or like gay people do. Mm -hmm. And so I also think it comes back to this essentialism thing that we've talked about quite a lot, that the main arguments about biphobia are very similar to the main arguments about transphobia. And it's about going against what's being seen as your like essence as a man or a woman. I actually wrote an essay on this, which you can find on my medium, which is called Bisexuality and the Threat Turf Politics, Mm -hmm. which talks about the, the essentialism overlap um, and how it's kind of still the same fight of destabilizing gender and destabilizing patriarchy and the way in which kind of gender upholds patriarchy. That is very much why we're seeing like this backlash mainly against trans people, particularly here in the UK. It's really scary right now. And eventually it will come for all queer people. But the arguments yep. against like trans and bi people are very, very similar. Yeah. Yeah, that was the uh, exact article I had been reading that I was referencing. (laughs) Um, And so uh, if you want to check out that article, we will put it in the show notes, uh, along with uh, lots of other of Lowe's writing and the link to the book. You can buy the book, by the way, uh, and we'll put lots of other stuff in there. 
Um, and that's, I think that'll do it for us today. We've covered uh, almost all the topics I wanted to, and it's been a lovely, fascinating by 2.0 discussion. So thank you so much for being here, Lo. Oh my God, thank you so much for having me on. I love talking about biopolitics. I love talking about deep fried biopolitics. I'll talk about it for hours. So thank you for inviting me on just to do like my favorite thing, which is talk about bisexuality. Yay, I'm so glad. Me too. (laughs) Thanks again, Lo. This was great. Thank you so much. Two Bye Guys is produced and edited by me, Rob Cohen, and it was created by me and Alex Boyd. Our logo art is by Caitlin Weinman. Our music is by Ross Mincer. We are supported by the Gotham, and we are part of the Zencaster Creator Network. Use promo code Two Bye Guys to get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster. Thanks for listening to Two Bye Guys. <laughs>